Well, good morning. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Hebrews 11, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 10. So we'll be in Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. Hear the word of our Lord. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Would you pray with me? Father, may these words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever received one of those robocalls, the ones promising you a free cruise? How about a strange email from a Nigerian prince who has been exiled from his kingdom, and he's promising you a fortune if you just send him $300 for a plane ticket? There is a saying for promises like these, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Now, our text this morning describes the response of a man named Abraham to a promise, a promise that when you hear it, it sounds too good to be true. We, we read about this promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, chapter 12 of Genesis lays out two main promises of God to Abraham— promises of land and promises of blessing. He promised him a land that God would dwell with him as his God, and he promised to bless Abraham and to make him into a great nation. Now, how did Abraham respond to this promise? Did he say, this is ridiculous. It sounds too good to be true. No, it says in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, our text this morning, that he responded by faith. He believed it. He believed this ridiculous promise. And not only did he believe it, he responded to it. This promise that God made to Abraham, it's our promise too, by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, we too receive promises of land and blessing. We receive the promise of a homeland, the city of God, heaven, which Jesus has promised to return and bring with him it's a new Eden where we will dwell with God forever. And we have a promise of a blessing where in Jesus Christ we are blessed with the forgiveness of our sins, right relationship with God, and the restoration of all things in him. And just like God's promise to Abraham, this promise demands 
a response. So the question that we're going to try to answer this morning is what does it look like to respond to the promise of God by faith? What does it look like to respond to the promise of God by faith? And our text answers this by showing us three responses. Obeying, dwelling, and looking. So responding to the promise of God by faith looks like obeying, dwelling, and looking. So first, obeying. Look back at verse 8. It says that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the land that he was to receive as an inheritance. This word, called, is a word filled with theological significance in the Bible. Those who are called are the beneficiaries of God's undeserved mercy and grace. They are those who are called out of the slavery of sin and death and called into right relationship with God. All of this happens not because of their merit or because of their performance, but because of the gracious purposes of a loving God. So before we begin talking about obedience, we need to clarify something, that Abraham was not called because of something special about him. He wasn't called because of something unique about him. He was called because of the gracious purposes of a loving God. And he was called to receive an inheritance. An inheritance is something that is received and not achieved. So begin, before we begin talking about obedience, we need to understand that obedience is always in response to the gracious calling of God, which is a calling to receive an inheritance. So this is the, the why of obeying. We, respond, we obey in response to God's gracious calling. But what does it actually look like to obey? Well, in Genesis 12, it says that God called Abraham out from among the nations and blessed him with an inheritance so that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Do you see what's happening here? God is calling Abraham out from among the nations and calling him to participate in the story of God, the God's story of redemption. And what is the story of redemption? It's the gospel. It's the good news that ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Adam failed to be who he was supposed to be in Genesis 3, God has been in the process of calling a people to himself through whom he will redeem and restore all things to the way they were always meant to be. Through Abraham, he raised up a people to be a light to the nations. And through the line of Abraham, he raised up the God-man, the new Adam, the true blessing to the nations, Jesus Christ. And now Christ has built his church to show the world that heaven is breaking in. So what does this tell us about obedience? It tells us that obedience ultimately looks like participating in God's story of redemption that he's writing in this world. Obedience ultimately looks like participating in God's story of redemption that he is writing in this world. God calls us out of the story that we are in and calls us to participate in the story that he is writing in this world. This is what obedience looks like. We turn from the stories of the world, stories that promise more and more and deliver less and less, and we give our lives to this story, to the gospel. As you and your family are approach this new year, I encourage, yourself, I encourage you to ask yourself this question. Is God's story of redemption the story that is captivating you and motivating the way you live your life? Have you built your life around the principle that you exist to tell this story to the world? 
Well, what does this look like? What does it look like to participate in God's story of redemption? What participation looks like is that everything in your life becomes an instrument to tell this story to the world. Everything in your life becomes an instrument to tell this story to the world. Your, your time becomes an instrument to tell the story to the world. Your, your talents become an instrument to tell the story to the world. Your treasure, your money, becomes an instrument to tell this story to the world. And these three things converge and are used to tell this story to the world primarily through God's gathered people, through the church. God raised up a nation, Israel, to be a light to the nations. And now in Christ, he's raised up a church to be a light to the nations. So participating in God's story of redemption must involve using your time, talents, and treasure to sacrificially build up his church so that we can tell this story to the world. Something else to note as we look at verse 8 is that in our participation in the story of redemption, we are not guaranteed the full knowledge of how our participation will pay off in the short term. Look back at the text. It says that he, Abraham, went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham set out to an unknown land because he was responding in faith to the promise of God. He didn't know how or when he would come to possess the land. He didn't know how his obedience would impact him financially. He didn't know how God was going to provide the offspring that he promised to him. He set off on this journey, and Sarah was still barren. On the road of obedience, we live by faith and not by sight. By faith, we give up the right to know exactly how each act of obedience will pay off for our immediate benefit. Now, this looks like foolishness to the world. The world says, why would you trust in the invisible promises of God over and against what you can see with your own two eyes? Why would you sacrifice your money, your time, your gifts, your home, your family to serve a God you can't see and who doesn't even show you how your sacrifice would pay off? Why do we do that? Because we don't look to what is seen. Those who look to what is seen, they trade ultimate assurance for immediate assurance. It's the story of the garden all over again where sin caused Adam and Eve to trade the ultimate assurance of eternal life and intimacy with God for the momentary pleasure of what they could taste and see. So why do we live by faith and not by sight, even though this looks like foolishness to the world? Because the ultimate assurance of the promise of God is so much more valuable than any immediate assurances offered by the world. We obey now as those called to receive an inheritance by participating in God's story of redemption, even though we may not know where we are going. So what does it look like to respond to the promise of God by faith? First, obeying. Second, dwelling. Look at verse 9. It says that by faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, this verse speaks to the fact that Abraham dwelled in the land that God 
had promised to him. But the emphasis, the weight of this verse is on the manner of Abraham's dwelling, how he dwelled. The word for live used here, it's a very specific word. It means to dwell as a sojourner. And a sojourner is someone who lives in a land temporarily. This verse also goes on to say that Abraham lived as a foreigner dwelling in tents. What's happening here? The author of Hebrews is using repetition as a form of emphasis. He is emphasizing that the manner in which Abraham lived in the land of promise was as a sojourner. He was not an entrenched citizen. A citizen is someone whose welfare is attached to the land in which they live. A sojourner finds their welfare in a land separate from the land in which they dwell. Why does this matter? It matters because the way you live in this world, in response to the promise of God, it shows to the world and to ourselves where we have put our ultimate hope. Abraham lived in the tension of being in the promised land, yet not yet possessing the promised land. This tension, it's the tension that we talk a lot about here at East. It's the tension of the already, but the not yet. See, at this point in Abraham's life, God's promise had already been fulfilled. He was indeed living in the land that God had promised to him. But God had not yet fully fulfilled that promise to Abraham. In fact, the people of Israel wouldn't come to fully possess the land of Canaan permanently until the time of David, almost a thousand years later. How was Abraham able to live in that tension? Because he knew that the land of Canaan was a temporary land that served to point forward and upward to a permanent land that was so much better. This is why he was able to dwell as a sojourner, living his entire life in tents. Hope in the eternal promises of God enabled Abraham to accept the reality that everything in this world is trying to deny. It's the reality that this life is temporary. It's passing away. You and I are living in the tension of the already but the not yet. Christ has already come, redemption has been won, but he has not yet returned to bring his kingdom fully. We are living in the tension of the temporary. The temptation for us is trying to resolve this tension by treating this temporary tent like it's a permanent dwelling. Friends, everything in this world Everything in our culture is trying to sell you the fact that this world is where you should put your hope. Listen, the American dream is trying to sell you that in order to live well in this land, you need to be an entrenched citizen. You need to build your kingdom. And in that kingdom, the gods are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I'm here this morning to tell you not to buy it. This world is not the promised land. America is not the promised land. And if Abraham lived as a sojourner in the promised land, how much more should we live as sojourners in this land? Why? Because the land that we hope in, the land that we find our welfare in, it's not this land. A sojourner holds loosely to the things of this world that are temporary and clings tightly to the world to come, the world promised by God. 
I've learned a lot of things as a parent, but I think one of the most important things I have learned is that it is okay to Google your child's behavior every once in a while. It is okay. One of the things I, I Googled recently is the phenomenon I like to call the dinnertime half-sit. It's that thing where your child is somehow miraculously half-sitting in their chair with one foot on the ground and the rest of their body in the chair. I would witness this over and over again, and I would correct it over and over again. So I just had to Google it. And you know what? I actually found an answer in an article posted by a pediatric occupational therapist. The reason is that even though the chair is perfectly capable of supporting your child, small children don't like the sensation of having their legs dangling. It's uncomfortable for them. So what they do to try to relieve this discomfort is to half sit in the chair with one foot on the ground. And the irony is that this half-sitting is just as uncomfortable as sitting with their feet dangling, and it's even harder to eat their food. You and I are living in the tension of being sojourners, the tension of the already but the not yet, and if we're honest, the tension feels uncomfortable. And for those of us experiencing suffering, the tension is so real, and it's so painful. It can feel like we are just dangling out there in eternity. So the temptation is to just stick one foot out and begin to rest functionally on the things of this world, all while religiously pretending to rest in the promises of God. And the signs of this are prevalent in the American churches. Prayerlessness, independence, love of comfort, when we try to half rest on the promises of God, what we are trying to do is negotiate a deal in which we can still get the promise but not have to feel any pain. And living like this is exhausting, isn't it? Here's the good news. To those of us who are worn out from trying to half sit on the promise of God, Jesus says, come, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. What we need to understand is that the unease of this life is what God intends to use to press us into deeper dependence on him and on his promises. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So how do we respond to the promise of God? By faith, first, obeying, second, dwell, dwelling, third, looking. Look at verse 10. It says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This word, looking, it means to expect with absolute confidence. The motivation for Abraham's endurance on the road of faith 
was an ongoing expectation in the coming city of God. This expectation is explained further if we go down a little bit in Hebrews 11 to verses uh, 13 through 16. It says, These all died in their faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the only reason Abraham was able to live as a sojourner in the land of promise, because he was looking forward with absolute confidence to a better city, the city that God had prepared for him. He knew that God wasn't holding out on him. God has something so much better in store for him, and Abraham had absolute confidence in that. He bet his life on that. Abraham, even though he never lived to see the promise fulfilled to him, he looked forward with absolute certainty to a heavenly city that God had prepared for him. This is what I want you to hear. Everybody in this world is looking forward to something. Everybody is betting their life on something. And either you are living your life having acknowledged that you are a stranger and an exile on earth, seeking a homeland, looking for the city of God, or you are betting your life on the fact that this world is all that there is. And what we look to is determined by where we think we're going to find life. Ultimately, either we believe that life is found in eternity or life is found in the temporary. If you are here this morning and you are looking to the things of this world for life, if you are looking to your family, to your marriage, to your children, to your possessions, to some future happiness for life, I just want to tell you there is something so much better. There is a better city, a heavenly city, a city you were made for where you can dwell with God forever, a city of which everything good in this life, everything you hold dear is but a shadow and a foretaste. It's a city where life is. I assume that most of you have been to Disney World. We are in Florida. Well, what's one of the first things you see when you finally make it through the parking lot out of the tram and into the park? What's one of the first things you see? You see the gift shop, right? I want you to imagine how ridiculous it would be to get to Disney World, pay for a ticket, walk into the gift shop, and never leave to go to the rest of the park. You just spend all day playing with the toys in the gift shop, never even considering the rest of the park that awaits you. There's something so much better right outside the door. And there you are playing with that thing that turns a smaller penny into a bigger penny all day long. This world is just a hint. It is just a glimpse of the city that is coming, the city that awaits us. It is tragic for us to spend all our lives 
looking to a city that is passing away and is not even worth comparing to the city that is coming. And what is this city? We have a beautiful description of it in Hebrews 12, if you want to flip over there, verses 22 through 24. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We are looking to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the story of redemption we were talking about earlier. This is the point of it all. God is bringing his people to a place where he will dwell with them forever. This is what Abraham was hoping in. He didn't want a temporary city. He wanted the city where God is, a city with foundations. And how may we come to this city because we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that he shed for us. We can look to the city of God because Jesus has secured this city for us and we are looking to him. So if you are here this morning and you're thinking there's no place for you in the city of God because of the sin in your life, because of the shame that you feel, I want you to hear that God has made a way for you in Jesus Christ. Believe in him, trust in him, and you'll be saved. Our groom is waiting for us in the city that he has won for us by his blood. And he is coming soon to bring that city with him. This promise that seems too good to be true, it's true, and it's true because of Jesus Jesus is the truer and the better Abraham who obeyed for us and left his heavenly country and entered into our world to win for us our inheritance. Jesus dwelled as a sojourner in a foreign land. It says in the Gospel of Luke that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Think of it. The king of the universe lived the life of a vagabond, the one who made everything, lived as though he had nothing. Our Savior was born in a place not worthy of him, lived in a world not worthy of him, and he died the death that we are worthy of. Why did he do this? Because he was looking to the city of God, the city that he has won for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful that before the foundations of the world, you have prepared for us a city, a homeland where we will dwell with you forever. Father, help us to see the supreme value of the city that is coming. And would that empower us to dwell as sojourners in this land, holding loosely to the things of this world and clinging tightly to the world to come. And Jesus, we acknowledge that it is in you alone that our hope is found. 
Help us by your spirit to live as participants in the story of redemption that you are writing in this world. We pray this, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen.